Good morning. Um, <clears throat> as we said yesterday, in order to complete this chapter of, of Nekiyot, we move now from Nekiyot in Mitzvot to Nekiyot in Midot. And um, uh, Ramchal tells us, Kamosh Bedabreinu Bemitzvot Shehatzorech Bam Yotel Dahan Mimashar Igluk Bene Adam Likashel in the same way that we concentrated, even though fundamentally we, we should go through all of the negative commandments when we're talking about uh, Nikiyut, um, and probably some positive commandments too, uh, he honed in on a number of specific ones which uh, the Ramchal understands are, are the most problematic or the most challenging for us. Uh, if you remember, we started with Gezel, Arayot and, and food, we went on to social issues, and we moved into Chilul Hashem and Shabbos. Uh, so the same is with Midot. With Midot, we're not, we're not going to talk about every single Midah, um, but uh, a number of Midot that are the most challenging for us to deal with. As I say, Mitzvot are a challenge. Uh, midot is our nature. And, uh, and if we have a problem with certain Midot, we have a real problem because to change that nature needs, needs so much focus and determination um, and 24-7 concentration it appears to me to be much more challenging than uh, not doing an isu, which is overcoming a yetzer. This, this, is, this is our nature or our second nature. So, lost my place. We're going to speak about the main Midot, the, the specific ones. And, and he, he now says, what are they? Gava, Kaas, Kina, and Tava. Gava, which is pride, Kaas, anger, Kina, which is envy, and Tava is desire. These are all bad Midot. Um, and uh, we don't need to prove that they're bad. They are, they are bad in themselves, and uh, they are bad in, in, in what comes from them. And again, there's four or five pages on this in Ramchal. But he's going to start with Ga'ava. Um, and I'm going to say this briefly, because again, my assumption is that you're going to read in the books. He, now, overt gava, it, when people are overtly proud, it, it, it's very easy to see, very easy to point out, and, and sometimes even quite embarrassing, unless they really are totally unawares of, of their personage and, and how they are percepted, how, how they are perceived, sorry. Um, but the, here in Nekiyut, we're, we're being a bit more subtle in our understandings of Ga'ava, and therefore Ramchal will talk about Ga'ava. Ga'ava could even be when a person is trying to be humble, meaning that the reason they're trying to be humble is because they want people to praise them for their, for, for, for their humility, which is, of course, Ga'ava. Ga'ava can also be, says the Ramchal, I'm just going through the, 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 the main themes here, can also be when a person simply, he, he doesn't walk around in a proud way, but he just won't take advice. He just doesn't listen to every. He is for sure uh, convinced that everything he is saying is absolutely correct and everything anyone else says 
is wrong. We have a lot of that gava in our youth, right? That we come to certain conclusions. We have uh, viewed, observed our, our, the, the adults around us for many years. We're convinced they are totally wrong. They've got totally no idea. We don't really have any real depth of understanding. We come to our conclusions and then nothing will sway our conclusions. It's a stubbornness. Um, it, it, but it's gaiva. It, it's gaiva that, that a person, you know, when you look back at it now, I... I have often said to my students that I, I almost go red in the face when I think about this, the arrogance of uh, 20-year-olds uh, when, they, when they're talking to adults who are twice their age, the arrogance sometimes that we have, um, the pride that we have uh, in, in ourselves, that, that ourselves, who, most of us at that age, have never even opened a bank account. It was opened for us. We never got ourselves a credit card that was got for us. We don't pay for our credit card either. Uh, we've never rented a building. Um, we've never paid a, a bill in our lives. Uh, we've never been involved in in marriage. You've never had children. Uh, experiences of life in general, Be'ezrat Hashem, Be'li'ayin Hara, Rahman al-Islam, We've never been to that many funerals. The experience of life that the average Western person has had by the age of 18 to 20 is minimal. And maybe it should be that way, right? The, 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 our parents, we, we should be bringing up kids and protecting them. Let, let at least the first stages of their life be a gradual, progressive uh, development. Um, but but the, the thought then that this child, who has never done any of these things, never been involved in any of these things, would be more streetwise and more understanding of the person giving them advice is obviously a nonsense. It's simply a nonsense. Uh, it, it's not even worth the argument. It's not worth the breath of elaborating on it too much. It's just a nonsense, you know, that someone looks at you and they say, you know, and often you have this, you know. I, I, I sometimes have this experience. I call it myself. It's my own phrase, the Berlin Wall experience, that you're sitting opposite a student and there is a wall in between you and them. It doesn't matter what you say. You, you can see it in their eyes. You can see it in the way they're sitting. Whatever you're saying is bouncing off them. They're just not in the slightest bit interested in, uh, in listening to what you say. Uh, at least, at the least, they have the uh, polite uh, way about them as to look as if they're interested. But you can see that, it, that, it, that it's not penetrating. Your advice is not penetrating. Maybe there's suspicion here, you know, when you're running a school and you're trying to help someone uh, settle in the school, they, they, I suppose they, they question your, your motivation to do it. Well, you want me here anyway, so you're going to say anything to keep me here. Um, that really isn't my motivation. Uh, but again, it's whether they believe me or not. My motivation is to make sure the student is happy and does what they can do here. And if they're not happy, they should leave. You know, I, I'm well past that stage of trying to, at the beginning when you're desperate to hold on to a student body, right at the beginning, then that could be the case. But at this stage, Baruch Hashem, after 28 years, I don't need to do that. And I don't, and I don't do it. And I, and I have the patience as well to know if one student goes, one student may well come. It, whatever, it's like Kodesh Baruch Hu decides. But the student doesn't believe that. They, they always have this suspicion that you're coming to give them, a, and, 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 then, and then they know better, of course. And, and how could it possibly be that a student who's been in the school for, for three weeks or four weeks can know more about Midrash Tarova than someone who's been working here and, and 
running Besiata Dishma, the program, for 28 years. How can, how, can, how can one possibly even argue that? It is the gaiva, it's the arrogance, it's the gaiva that we have when we're youthful. Uh, if you go all the way back to when I said Zahirut Bedrachinu, uh, in our ways, I had a gaiva in my initial understanding of my hashkaf of religious Zionism. I, I simply dismissed everything and anything else. I didn't even consider the fact that there were very, very clever, wise and holy people who thought otherwise and wasn't prepared to listen. That doesn't make me wise, that just makes me stupid. And, 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 and my gaiva denies me the ability to see what, what, what I should see. Uh, the, the gaiva as well can be, right, that when you, you think something is your due and you don't get it, and then, you, and, and then you get very, very upset. People don't always see this upset, right? When you see the upset, then you're really in a bad way if, if you show this. This is, this again, the classic examples uh, which, which you don't experience as much as men experience. Surely examples are left, right and centre. There are certain mitzvahs in shul that, that, that people will go to war about. Mamash. They'll go to war about it. If, if a person has a yortzah and they don't get shlishi, if they have a yortzah, they get shishi. Uh, when you go up to them, they kind of say, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. If for some reason you can't give the aliyah, my God, it matters. <laughs> they, they go ballistic. You know, and, 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 and you, you have to, if you're a gabai, and I've been a gabai a number of times in Oshul, you have to be very sensitive towards that. But, but very often people come up and say, no, no, if you can, if you can. And if you can't, they'll go crazy. So this is a kind of uh, superficial humility where they come towards you. No, no, I really don't mind. I really don't mind. I really don't mind. Of course they mind. Uh, and very often when people say that, when we say it ourselves, we're very complex human beings, we say we don't mind something, and we do mind, and it eats away inside of us, and, and it destroys our lives. You cannot be a happy person if these things are going on in your life, if you, if, if you think you're due a covered, if you think that people should have stood up for you, should have let you speak, should have, whatever it may be, uh, the gaiva grows on you, and uh, as I say, he gives a whole different list, and, 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 and the complexity is only reflected more by the fact that he says the most, the most gaivadic people are the people who, who want books written about their humility about them. You know, they, their whole act is a play out, but inside of them, they are totally preoccupied with themselves. So there are many forms of gava here. Obviously, the overt gava is not the kiyut. That is something we should have dealt with before. And therefore, we're dealing with more subtle types of gava. And, and he elaborates more than I've elaborated here. And it, it's certainly worth you looking in. And then we go into, after, after gava, we go into kas. And obviously, the overt kas, and, and you see it more... You see it more frequently in younger people, overt caste, uh, overt anger, when they, they just blow up all the time. Um, <coughs> with older people, it happens a lot less. Uh, it can happen in, in moments of pressure. It can happen in moments of frustration. Um, and uh, this is something that we need to control. But again, if we want to deal with the, the subtle type of caste, it's not the caste that, that we show okay, that, that very often we have an ulterior motive to deal with because it doesn't make us particularly popular. Um, people laugh at us, or they, they don't like us, uh, and uh, there are immediate ramifications for someone who is angry and bitter with other people. And, um, and they're very hard to reverse. If you have got a name for such a thing, if you are thought of as such a person, then um, as many of my students have found in life, as I have found in life, there is this saying in England called uh, mud sticks, that the, min the minute 
you have a reputation for something, to, to release yourself of that reputation takes an infinite amount of more time than it did to possess that reputation, to attain that reputation. If you're known as an angry person, then um, it's very, very hard to, to get rid of that. Uh, I, have, I have a problem with anger, but the, the bigger problem I have with my anger is not the anger that you see, it's, it's the anger inside. This is an anger that scares me enormously because, because it eats you up. It, it, it eats up your, your personage. It just eats you up as a person, meaning that you don't necessarily vocalise what you're angry about. You don't necessarily um, go crazy with people, and, uh, but, but, but you are very upset about things. You're very annoyed about things. And... As we mentioned with Natira Nakima in, in, in the area of mitzvot, uh, you keep it inside of you and you, you are just a bomb waiting to explode. Uh, getting rid of anger means getting rid of the anger inside of you as well. And that, of course, is far, far more difficult than the anger on the outside of you because there is no obvious motivation to get rid of this anger, right? If, if, I, if you're suffering socially because of a bad temper, then there is motivation to start controlling yourself because people just don't want to be with you. Um, but, but if the anger is within you, no one else knows of it. And uh, I think also we have to admit, any of us who deal with this know that, that there's a limit to how much you can keep the anger inside of you and it, and it will ultimately explode. And then when it does explode, it, it, it's far worse than ever before. And of course, we want all of these things are really to do with, uh, with ego, right? It's to do with, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me. And that's where the anger comes from. It's the same with Gaiva. It's about me, it's about me, it's about me. Um, the more we concentrate on ourselves in this world and see ourselves in the center, it's clear that there can be no room for Kadosh Baruch Hu, right? Because... Uh, it's as if to say, even though it sounds like heretic, a heretical statement, uh, this place ain't big enough for the both of us. So uh, either the human being's in the center or God is in the center. Either I'm going to be Cain, Cain, Kone, uh, possessing the whole world, or I'm Hevel. Uh, if I'm Hevel, if I'm able to see myself as Hevel, then there's room for God to come into the world and be Melech Machem Lachim. If man decides that he is the centre of the world, Kaviachal, there's no room for God. That is, that battle of Cain and Abel has been going on since creation of man. Uh, who is in the centre, man or God? And, and anger, the essence of anger, is, is me, is, is trying to protect me. And obviously the highest level of... Uh, of, of Nekiot with anger is a story of Hillel where a man makes a wager, he makes a bet to try and get Hillel angry and he doesn't succeed. He, uh, he goes to Hillel in the most uh, um, pressured time, you know, showering on an Erev Shabbos. So remember, showering uh, in the days of Tanaim isn't the same as showering today. Today, you can walk into a shower, you can turn on the water, put shampoo on your hair, and put soap on your body, and you can be out of the shower in five minutes. Whether you do that or not is up to you, but, 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 but it's, a quick, it's a quick procedure. Uh, but, but having a shower in the days of Hillel, I presume, was a bit more complex, and it keeps getting called in and out of the shower. It's Erev Shabbos, and he just doesn't lose it, and uh, he, he really doesn't lose it. Uh, and that's an incredible thing, right? That, that a person just doesn't get upset by things and doesn't get angry, and that's a madriga. So we've had gava, we've had kas, 
Uh, and the next is kina. Uh, kina is envy, and and the challenge of kina is enormous, uh, and it's progressively challenging in life. As I say, if you start as a child and you are envious of the fact that this person's got a a, a beautiful set of play playmobil, and and you've only got a, a Rami Levy Lego. You know, not even Lego, Lego. Uh, and you look at his games. Every time you go to his house, he's got this and he's got that. And, he, and then he's got the computer programs. And you even have a computer. Then, then he's got an iPhone and, and you don't have a phone because uh, your parents are trying to educate you and there's no need for a 10-year-old to have a phone. Uh, and here is envy, right? You're looking at someone and the grass is greener on the other side. Um, but this honestly is kids' games, although it doesn't appear to be for kids because everything is relative to the context that you're living in at the time. Um, but it is kids' games if, if you compare it to the kind of issues that happen later on. For example, all your friends are getting married and um, you just haven't found your bachelor yet and it just hasn't happened yet. There's a, this kind of pressure which is not just based on the fact that you would like to get married, but based on the fact that everyone else is married. Uh, and the question you have to ask yourself with a very difficult question is, well, if no one was married, what do I want to be married? Or is my drive to be married just because other people are married? If it's the latter, that's not a reason to get married, obviously. Um, but, but then it's just not working out for you. And, and then let's move to the next stage. It does work out for you, uh, but your, your friends have children. And Rahman al-Islam, you're finding it difficult having children. And this is very, very difficult, specifically in the religious world where we have this kind of phrase, ba'agala o vizman kariv, either the baby's in an agala or vizman kariv, it's about to happen. And, uh, and there's, there's this kind of unspoken, uh, and it exists definitely in my community, and it did, I mean, I'm past that age now, uh, and, and it exists in, in the Haredi community, I know that because of secretaries that have worked for me, and uh, it, it's this unspoken pressure. You are a young married couple, and uh, it's just the two of you together, and meanwhile your friends have, have two children, three children, four children, uh, and you're just dying to have children. Now, hopefully you're dying to have children because you want to have children, because children is the greatest bracha any human being could have in this world. But sometimes people want to have children because uh, I need to have children, right? That, that, that's, that's part of the, uh, of the culture, is part of the chibra. Again, this is not a reason to have children. <laughs> the, the purpose of having children is to bring life into this world and to build a mishpach, and it's part of... Is part of who I am and, and giving and so many positive things. It is the greatest bracha, more important than any, anything else you'll do in your life is to get married and have children and, and have a family. It's far more important than any profession you can do. Uh, just just that, that, that have, having a good marriage and having beautiful children and wonderful children is... Uh, the question here is, do I want to have children because otherwise I don't fit in? Or do I want to have children because... Um, because I want to have children. And again, this, this, so you see the stakes get higher uh, with Kin'a, and, um, and it's an enormous challenge. It's an enormous challenge to us uh, about uh, re regarding whether we can overcome this Kin'a as well. Now, now what, what is often spoken about in, in Amma Falshim is, is the fact, is the fact, I just asked him to be a bit quieter here, 
well, it's not here even, it's room nine, it, it, it is, is the fact that uh, we have to have it within our, within our mindset that the fact that someone else has something isn't the reason that I don't have it. You understand what I'm saying? Ibn Ezra says this on Lot Achmon. He says, it, it, it's stupid, right? That, that God can give everyone everything. So if, if Ploni Almoni has something and I don't have it, it's not that I have it because he, but I don't have it because he does. It doesn't work that way. There, there's plenty of everything for everyone. And therefore, if I don't have it, it's because Akush Baruch it's not destined to be mine. Um, and, and, and therefore, there's no reason for me to be mekaneh other people. It's just got nothing to do with me. I should be sameach for other people, for their simcha, as they should be sameach for me in my simcha. And, and their simcha isn't taken away from any potential simcha of mine. And therefore, I, I have to work on this issue, right? To, uh, not to be mekaneh, uh, my, my fellow person. So we've had ga'ava, we've had ka'as, and we've had kin'ah. And then in the, in the, the next, we're going to talk about chemdat hamamon and chemdat hakabod. Which are, which are the, the last subjects he really talks about here. Chemdat Hamamon is this midah where we, we simply want money. You know, we, are, we are possessed, are obsessed with this need to have money and uh, to, uh, to um, more money and more money, more money than we need. I sometimes read when I'm reading uh, the news and I have a look at some of the sports there and I see that, that people are being paid the most ridiculous amount of money, and there must be multi, multi millionaires, uh, the greatest sportsmen or the greatest movie stars, and you're asking yourself, why do they need so much more money? At some stage, uh, put some money in the bank and give the rest to charity or help people, and I'm sure some of them do this, but there's this chemdat hamamon, the need to, to have more and more and more, and I even mentioned it in a different context in an earlier shiur, this notion in economics of status symbol that defies uh, the, the laws of demand and supply in economics. And on the contrary, the more expensive something is, the more people want it because it's a status symbol. It's chemdata mamon. I'm not just going to stay in a regular hotel with a regular bed as long as it's clean. No, I have to stay in the Waldorf. No, I have to stay in this. And it's, a, it's just ridiculous amount of chenda that someone is, is occupied by money. And this is, this is a resource, right? You can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. I have to remind you because I feel I feel it's important to remind you that um, that story that happened with a, a very very uh, rich uh, uh, charitable man who died. I believe it was in Canada. It's quite a well-known story, but it's always worth doing chazar on these stories. It is a true story, and uh, what happened was that uh, when he died, he left two envelopes for his sons to read. I'm sure it's coming back to you now. In the first envelope, he says, should be opened up before the funeral. The second envelope should be opened up after the shloshim. So the, the, the sons, I think there were two sons, opened up the, the envelope before the funeral. And it said, you know, dear sons, by now, if you're reading this letter, I'm in, in another place. Uh, I, I have one request alone from you, and that is to bury me in my favorite socks. I have put them in the top drawer in such and such a place in my bedroom. And uh, so they went to get the socks. They took the socks to the Hebra Kadisha, and uh, the Hebra Kadisha <laughs> uh, looked at them in, in astonishment and said, you know, we don't bury people in socks. There are special tachriche hamed, there are special clothes for the maid that we, after we've done the tahara, we put the, the med in, in those clothes. They're white clothes, they're made of special linen, and, and that's it. That's it. 
and the people start, as, as sometimes rich people can do, they're rich and powerful, they say, listen, we've given so much money, we'll give you more money, da 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 and they're an orthodox chavakadisha, forget it, just forget it, this isn't going to happen. That we have guidelines of exactly how to bury a, a Jewish body, and that's what we're going to do. And they just could not convince them, not, not by bribe and not by threat, it, it just would not move. And so the father was buried without his socks. At the end of the Shloshim, when the boys had calmed down a bit, they opened up the second envelope, and the second envelope, second letter, said as follows. By now, my dear sons, you will know that you can be a multi-multi-multi-millionaire, but you cannot even take your socks with you to Shammai. It's such a, a strong lesson that the father left his sons with. You know, at the end of the day, pe- people want to be comfortable. I, I understand that. I have the same feeling. They, they, they don't want to be under financial pressure all the time. But at the same time, at, at the end of the day, money is a means to keep us alive in this world, just as food is a means to keep us alive in this world, just as sleep is a means to give us energy to, to perform. And, and that's it. It, it. These things are not ends. They, they're not objectives in life. The objective of life is not to make money. If you're choosing a profession, you should not, not choose a profession based on how much money you're going to make, because that doesn't make sense. You're going to do this job five, six days a week. You have to be happy in your profession. You have to feel that your profession is fulfilling for you. If it's not fulfilling for you, then, then you're just going to so you have money, but you'll be miserable. you just be miserable. So what's the point of money? For us, well, what do you want it for? And the last chemda that we speak about here as well is, and with this we finish this chapter, um... I hope it isn't too chafif because we, we've done Nekiot, uh, which is, I, I can spend months on this in the Midrashah, and we've done it in four short sessions. But, but our aim here is, is, is to do Bekiot in, in Mesira Isharim, is Chemdat HaKavod, is how much uh, self-esteem can go overboard. Here we have to find the right balance. You remember that famous statement of Reb Simcha Bunim, a person uh, on the presumption you have two pockets in your skirt or two pockets in your, in your trousers, um, should have one petek in one pocket that says, Bishvili nivraha olam, the world was created for me. And in another pocket you should have, Ani afava eifer, that I'm just, I'm just uh, ashes and dust. That, that's what I am, right? or dust and ashes, I, I, I'm nothing. And, and we, we're always doing a balancing, a balancing act between the two. A human being should have self-esteem. They should realise that they, they were created for a reason, they, they're in this world for a purpose. It, it's important that a person has self-esteem. At the, same, at the same time, we cannot get carried away with this. And, and it's the most shocking Gemara, I think, uh, quoted here with Chemdat Kavod when he speaks about... Um, he speaks about uh, a conversation that took place between Yeravam, David Amelech, and Akadosh Baruch Hu. As you know, Yeravam was initially uh, mandated to split the kingdom uh, in Melachim Aleph, and uh, this was uh, this was a nevuah that he should do it. Bachiyashiloi told him that he should split the kingdom, and he was told to do it. It was a gazera, and the, 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 the Jewish people were split between Rechavam, who had Yehuda, and, and part of Shimon, and, and a certain amount of Levim, and, and the ten tribes, right? Yehuda, so, so ten, that was how the ten tribes began. 
And Yeravam started off doing this. He did this because he was commanded to do so. But as very often happens, but people... Mihu Melecha Kavod, who is the king of Kavod, 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 only Hashem, right? Only Hashem is Melecha Kavod, uh, and Kavod takes over you, it grows on you, and uh, and and you become very, very. Um, and so with Yeravam, he he lost it, kind of, and 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 then he was worried that people would go back, and he built his own place for for idolatry, for the ten tribes. It all went wrong. Uh, what the, the, the Gemara in Sanhedrin says is that Hakadosh Baruch Hu turns around to Yeravam and says. If you uh, if you show regret, if you accept David HaMelech as being the king of Israel, then me, you, and David HaMelech will walk together in Gan Eden. That's a pretty good offer. You know, I, I, th- I think I would like to think that if HaKosh Baruch Hu said anything to me, I would be amazed. But, you know, he says things to me all the time. But if he actually spoke to me, spoke to me. Uh, but if HaKosh Baruch Hu gave me this offer, listen, Milston, um, just, just, do Teshuvah, and then me, you, and David Amelech will walk together in uh, in Gan Eden. So that, that's enough of an impetus, I would hope, for me to just do Teshuvah and just, I don't know, uh, just to be up there with Akush Baruch and David Amelech, which must be in the, one of the greatest, greatest palaces of uh, Olam Haba. Um, that's, but, but that's not what the, that's not what the uh, Gomorrah says. Uh, Yeravam's response to this offer from HaKadosh Baruch Hu was who's going to be in front, me or David? And HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, no, David will be in front. And so Yeravam says, forget it. He says, just forget it, no, no. That's how far Kavod can take you. That's this, this craziness of a person's self-esteem just, just growing on them and, and becoming totally, totally ridiculous. Uh, I'll tell you a personal story, which um, is quite a funny story, I think. It just so happened on, on, on the week that I got my smicha, which I think was, I don't know, I think it was around 1994, 1995, 1994, I think. So I had uh, finished my exams for Rabbanot in the previous summer, and I had already started on the presumption Bezrat Hashem was going to pass my final exam. I had already started working as head of the Midrasha, uh, but, but my smicha wasn't complete until I got my result. It was a final result. It was my final exam of Shabbat and Erovin, which is a, a challenging test. And um, the Rabbanot in those days, it took them a bit of time to answer your, to, to, get, to, get, uh, to get your results. I did my exams, I, I, all, all of my exams, I sat in the week of Tisha B'Av. Uh, that, that, was the, that was the Noel then. Um, things might have changed, and, and uh, I, I, I was recruiting in England, so it must have been October time. Um, I, I, I was, and, and I had planned, the, as I did in those days very often, to be with my parents for the Shabbat, you know. I could be with my parents and recruit Kamatov. Uh, and what happened was, on the Friday morning uh, of the Shabbat that I was in England, uh, my results came through to Alon Shvot. My wife was very excited for me, as, uh, and she phoned me, and I passed, and Hashim, I passed well, and uh, that was it. So I had Smicha, which was, uh, had been a dream, uh, and it was, for me, uh, a wonderful thing. And um, my parents were obviously very, very excited. The community I came from at the time 
did not produce many rabbis. It, it was a kind of middle-of-the-road traditional community. Everything's changed in my neighborhood now, but uh, my old neighborhood now. Um, it just so happened on that Shabbos that uh, Chief Rabbi Sachs, Zichroi Levracha, was in my hometown and he was speaking. And someone made a mention to I didn't know Rabbi Sachs and he didn't know me, but because they mentioned it to him, he, as being the uh, responsible and good and, and lovely person that he was, as well as a Talmud Chacham, he put time aside in his sermon on Shabbat morning to mention David Milston from Edgware, homegrown, who's got smicha, fantastic. Uh, my parents were beaming, and I, I can't say I wasn't beaming, it's a big cupboard. But kids saw that's not the part of the story I want to I I talk about. It. What happened at the, at the end of shul, one of my dad's colleagues, uh, uh, my dad was a gabai in the shul, one of the gabai, his name was uh, Joe Pelmata, rest his soul, and uh, he came up to me and he put his hand out and he said, Rabbi Milston, Shabbat Shalom. Good Shabbos, he probably said good Shabbos. And I, I turn around to him in England. Anyone who's older than you, you generally call uncle. Uh, you don't you don't call them by their first name. It's a it's a nice habit. It's a nice noir uh, of respect. So I turned around to Mr. Pelmutter and I said, Uncle Joe, please don't call me Rabbi. You know you've known me since I was uh, nothing, and uh, you don't need to call me Rabbi. And then he said to me, I uh, I'm not respecting you, I'm honouring your position. So as you know, uh, I have a, a sense of humour. Uh, I happen to like my sense of humour. <laughs> and uh, I asked my dad when we went home for Suda, I asked my dad, uh, tell me Uncle Joe, he was in the army in the Second World War, uh, what was his rank? So my dad said, as far as I'm aware, he was a sergeant. So we came out from Minch in the afternoon, I went up to him, I stood at attention and uh, I gave him a salute. And I said, Shabbat Shalom, Sergeant Permata. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I am respecting the position, not the person. And it was a bit of a joke between us. And uh, it was very, very important to me not to, uh, that it didn't matter if people called me Rav or not Rav. And I've tried to sustain that uh, over three decades. Uh, I still hope that I, I'm able to sustain that. But I can't tell you with a, with a complete heart that if, if someone comes up to you and says, Mr. instead of Rabbi, there isn't a split second. It's a split second twinge. Why, why, and what you really want to say, no, it's Rabbi. Man. But you're not going to say that, right? Because that's, that's absolute gava. But you still have the gava inside of you. Mise melech kavod. To be a melech of kavod. I have this in the Midrashat all the time. I think it's a source of so much critique that I get. You know, I'm always trying to find... Um, connections with girls. There are girls who come to many of my shirim. There are girls who don't like my shirim. They don't come at all. So it makes sense that I would have more of a kesha with girls who come to my shirim. And some of you know I have a nickname for a girl. I have this for a girl. And then I get these calls from Mashkichot. You didn't say hello to her. You didn't say this to her. And I'm thinking, who, who the hell cares who I say hello to? Why does it matter? And, and on one occasion, um, I was even... I was told by a parent phoned me and said, that I had said to his daughter that I hate her. And uh, I was shocked by this. I couldn't for the life of me remember. It was late at night and I, I said, listen, I'm, just before we pursue this, this discussion, I need you to phone back your daughter and ask her exactly what happened, which the parent did. He was very polite. And, and then he phoned back very embarrassed. He said, no, no, you didn't say you hate her at all. I really apologise for that. Apparently you were walking around the Beit Midrash and you were saying hello to everyone and you didn't say hello to her. And therefore, she assumed that you hate her. 
Now, of course, I, you have to be, I have to be, it's my role, it's my job to be aware of this, of sensitivities. But what probably happened was I was going around the Bake Midrash saying hello, and then someone called me, to, to and so I turned around and went out. Uh, but, but people's covered me, me, means that they, they are very, very sensitive to this thing, and, and that this should ruin a person's day, or this should, that means it was just before Poland, and the girl didn't want to go to Poland, if I hated her, and that. We sorted it out, it was, it was sorted out, it's fine. Uh, but very often, Yakira would come and tell me, and, and Deborah would tell me, Yakira Moore would say in those days, you know, you, you have to uh, be aware, right, that if you say something to this one, you've got to say something to that one, and, and, and it's covered. So, so my job is to do the right thing. But the job of the other person is to understand it's not the end of the world, right? If, if you don't get what you feel to be, you're covered. At, at this stage, uh, I apologise for the brevity. Uh, we have reached the end of of Peret Yud Aleph, which is dealing with uh, Nekiut. Uh, it is the final stages of being a tzaddik, but we haven't finished yet, right? As is always the rule here, we have to describe how to possess Nekiut and how to retain Nekiut, how not to lose Nekiut. All of this is together in a very short chapter, chapter 12, which Be'ezat Hashem will do tomorrow. Uh, and, and at that stage of the book, chapter 12, we, we've essentially finished the first third of the book and should be tzaddikim. Of course, we're not, but we keep doing chazara in the hope that we will progress la'at la'at. Have a good day.